Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Dave Broker about the history of industrial revolutions, the transition of human capital, and the shifting future of work. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Hi. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have a chance to talk. Um, You host your own podcast, so you have these types of discussions often, and it's fun to connect with people um, who are having these types of um, dialogues on a regular basis. Uh, As we get started, I just want to share Dave's brief bio with the listeners. Dave Broker is the host of the Industrial Revolutions Podcast. Uh, the story about how a primate species called Homo sapiens built into interconnected world of skyscrapers, robots, airplanes, vaccines, and nuclear bombs. Each month, he releases new episodes about the history of the last 250 years and the impact that new technologies have had on the world's economies, governments, religions, families, environments, and more. And today, we're going to be talking about some of those shifts um, and how um, how those have impacted the world and kind of this, our framing of human capital um, and try to have a better sense of, for understanding how uh, we find ourselves in the situation we are in today and what that means, not only for organizations, but for broader society. So this is a little different than the typical type of interview that I do on the podcast and the type of um, discussion I have, but it's it's a super interesting opportunity and I'm excited to, to talk with you. Uh, anything you would like to share about background or anything personal that you'd like to share before we get started? Well, I'll say this. One of the reasons I started the podcast was because, um, you know, we are seeing just a massive amount of transformation on the horizon um, in terms of us as employees, as far as us as, you know, members of our own families and so forth. And so I wanted to explore what has happened in these last 250 years because um, it, it gives us some guidance, this history, in terms of, you know, what's coming next, uh, how are, how, we can even, pre, you know, to some extent predict our own reactions to what's coming next based on what's happened before. So um, that, that was really the uh, motivation uh, for the Industrial Revolutions. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And I should share, this is not something I think I've shared much with my listeners previously. Um, you know, I'm a professor of organizational leadership. I teach organizational development and change management, uh, organizational leadership, HR type of courses. Uh, my PhD is actually in sociology, where I did comparative international um, sociology, international political economy, and work in organizations. And so a lot of that is actually related directly to what you're talking about. So um, you know, going back in time and looking at 
the shifts in the nature of work over um, many centuries and um, global shifts in power and kind of these macro processes that are shaping uh, the nature of work um, and the nature and the experience of employees across the world. Uh, and so that's a lot of what I've, I did in my training, a lot of what I have done in my research. Um, and uh, nowadays, when I, when I focus on my research, I'm, I'm really focused more in like the last 50 years and how that informs what's happening, you know, moving forward into the future of work. Um, but, you know, look, take, taking an even broader lens and under, trying to understand um, all of these drivers and how they've been impacting things over hundreds of years is really, I think, uh, important and uh, enlightening, you know, to try to help us make sense of where we're at right now. So anyways, I, we're uh, two peas in a pod, I think, when it comes to our interests in, uh, in these issues. Yeah, well, you know, even more than last hundred few years, you know, human society, how we organized ourselves as, as, as humans for social cooperation, uh, it was relatively unchanged for about 10,000 years, right? And um, you know, some people got to be kings or, or uh, bishops or uh, lords or, you know, whatever. But most people were craftsmen or, or peasants or slaves. And all of that has changed in just these last 250 years. Um, you know, I, I pointed out on Twitter a while back that um, 250 years ago, over 90% of the world's countries were ruled by monarchs. And, and now it's, um, I think, less than 10%. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of transformation we've seen. And, and that's pretty extraordinary. And uh, it's because of uh, industrialization in, large, in a very large part. Yeah. So, and let's start there. I mean, it's the name of your podcast. You, you've just been referring to it, this, this mm -hmm. tremendous shift that that's just happened in relatively recent history over the last couple hundred years. And we can, we can mark at least a big part of that shift coming from because of the industrial revolution. So what do you mean by that when you talk about the industrial revolution and why, and why did you choose that as the name for your podcast? Sure. Um, well, the industrial revolution is a, a period that uh, different historians will define in different ways. Uh, you know, there's a very good argument to be made that, we're still in the industrial revolution. There's still this transformation uh, underway. It's not like the pace of technological change, for example, has started to taper. Um, if anything, it has only you know grown exponentially. It's only accelerated. Uh, but you know, many do talk about there maybe being three or even four industrial revolutions. We hear this all the time when people talk about Industry 4.0, uh, for example. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is very convenient for how I structure the podcast. So, uh, in terms of breaking things into historical chunks, um, right now, uh, I'm still on the first industrial revolution. I'm actually going to be wrapping that up in September. And for my purposes, I date that between roughly 1760 and 1848. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, oh, go ahead. And, and I'll say, you know, like, this is a period where, you know, we don't see things quite like electric lighting yet. Um, but, 
you know, we see the invention of the steam engine, which is the first source of power that's not by uh, wind or water or muscle. Um, you've got advanced techniques appearing in things like iron making and mining and farming. And farming is one that doesn't get a lot of attention, but it should. Um, you also see the development of precision engineering at this time, which is was very overlooked for a very long time. And it's only now starting to um, appear in the focus of historians. Um, and then you've got all this improved transport infrastructure, first with canals and then with railroads. Um, and of course, then you've got the introduction of the factories, which is a big one for the purposes of exploring human resources and human capital. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, obviously, I, I think most people, when they think about the Industrial Revolution, they think of factories. And mm -hmm. that just fundamentally shifted the way work was done for people who were in these urban centers and working in factories. But you highlighted other, um, other technological advances that also vastly changed the landscape. So perhaps we can focus there for a minute. So for example, with agriculture, now we had huge advances, or now we have uh, the steam engine. So we have, um, we have easier transportation. So we have more mm. connectedness across urban centers and across the country uh, in the it, US. It, liter it literally changed the landscape because you started yeah. to have suburbs appear when you started to see the railroads get built. Yeah, so, so even setting aside factories for a moment, how, how did this transition and these technological advances, how did it start to shift and transition the nature of human capital and the nature of work? Well, first and foremost, it increased the population considerably. I mean, you have increased food production, you get more people. Um, on top of that, you've got greater economic productivity developing for all sorts of reasons. And factories are a big part of that. But also, you know, if you're able to ship your goods to market faster with canals or with you know, locomotive driven uh, trains, then, you know, it's speeding up the pace of, um, of transactions, it's speeding up the pace of, uh, of income generation, and, and ultimately that reinforces itself um, because you do see the evolution of capitalism in this uh, era from, from being pretty much concentrated in, in high finance and in terms of like banks, and, and you see it start to develop in the accumulation of, of real capital and and also uh you know things like machines and whatnot yeah in terms of uh what people are owning and and as that grows um it increases material well-being and uh that it does spread to everyone not not equally but it does spread to everyone to some extent yeah and and so now shifting to factories a little bit I mean, prior to the Industrial Revolution, prior to factories, I mean, the vast, vast majority of workers worked on a farm or they worked in a trade as a craftsperson. You had some merchants, you had some people in banks and finance and such. Um, you had government workers and such. Um, and so all of a sudden you had this huge, tremendous shift in the structure of economies um, in the type of work that people were doing. Um, you think of craft, uh, craft work that was done before factories, 
and you would have someone who was a skilled craftsman who would see a, a project through from beginning to end. Um, they would they would do it in completion largely. Uh, and now all of a sudden they find themselves in a factory where it's assembly line and they're doing one tiny little sliver um, of this entire um, uh, work that's being done to produce a product. Uh, and that had, sh that j just caused all sorts of changes in terms of the quality of life uh, as it relates to work. Um, and when, when I think about today, like if I'm talking with leaders about how to create meaningful work, how to motivate people at work, I, you know, we talk about a whole range of extrinsic motivators. We talk about a range of intrinsic motivators. And in the early industrial revolution, there wasn't much thought to any of that. Um, it, there were people flooding the urban centers. And so uh, there, was a, there was a surplus of labor. Um, you know, all the extrinsic motivators were pretty low. It was more survival, largely. Um, mm -hmm. People just needing to get a job and taking any wage they could get so they could provide food for their family. Um, and, and then it's all, you know, you think of Maslow's hierarchy as simplistic as that is, you know, you have to meet those basic levels before you can even start to think about self-actualization at higher levels of motivation. And so any of the intrinsic stuff didn't even really come into play. And so when you think about like Fordism and Henry Ford and the assembly line, and you think about all of that transition that happened in the nature of work, you went from very meaningful work where people could see the product you know that they that they built this thing with their hands and now it's so segmented and they're just doing the same repetitive thing over and over again it dramatically shifted that and that had implications for mental health and and overall well-being and all those sorts of things um yeah. other thoughts thoughts and insights you have about that transition Well, um, you're totally right. Uh, when people started migrating from the countryside into the cities, um, you know, there's this thought that, that we have that, you know, the, the pay was so bad and you know, people were miserable. But really, I mean, they were getting much better uh, job opportunities in the cities than they ever had in the country. And, and they were actually quite grateful a, a lot of the time for the opportunities they were getting um, because most people, you know, were farm laborers and, and, and not the skilled trades, uh, you know, craftspeople who, who worked in the medieval guilds. Um, but uh, at the same time, as a result of this, you do see a, uh, a lack of um, autonomy, a, a lack of freedom in the workplace. Um, you know, just for example, you know, you would, you, you used to own your own tools and you could pick the days you worked. Uh, but once you start getting a job in a factory, you don't get to make those decisions for yourself anymore. The boss is going to say when you need to show up and, uh, and what task you need to do. Um, and the guy who I think, think exemplifies this best is a guy I don't think most Americans uh, know about. Um, he, his name was Josiah Wedgwood. And um, uh, if, if you're British, you might know who he was, but um, he was born in England in 1730. He grew up as a pottery apprentice, uh, but then he got smallpox uh, as a teenager and it was so severe that he needed to have his leg amputated. 
And the thing was that the potter's wheels of this time required you to use a foot pedal. So uh, obviously he needed to make some changes. He, um, he first made sure to finish, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, made sure to um, focus on his finishing skills. Um, so for example, putting handles on teacups, and this was a time when you know, it wasn't taken for granted that teacups should have handles on them. Uh, he made it that way. And um, uh, that's how he made a name for himself. That's how he built a business. And when he was in business for himself, he needed to get creative with production techniques. Uh, and he was a very creative guy in general, right? I mean, like centuries ahead of his time in terms of marketing and analytics. Um, you know, he introduced steam engines to the process. Uh, some of the first, in fact, that were built by James Watt, went into Wedgwood's factory to uh, spin these powder wheels, which you know wasn't only a form of automation, it, was a, uh, uh, it allowed a more consistent finish in the, in the finished goods. And, um, you know, I set it up on a canal so we could um, ship raw materials in and finish goods out faster. Uh, and all of this, by the way, is in the 1760s and 70s and 80s, which is, you know, decades ahead of, of these other industrialists. Um, but I think the thing he did that was most critical and most um, innovative, although I don't necessarily use that in a, in a positive way, is what he did in terms of employee management. Uh, he came up through the guild system, but he didn't have any use for it himself. Um, you know, the guild wasn't going to enforce the standards of quality. He was going to enforce the standards of quality. And I mean, he would do things like uh, pick up half-finished work and smash it and shout, this will not do for Josiah Wedgwood <laughs> at, the, at the poor employee. Um, but with his, you know, meticulous record keeping, he was able to analyze production to identify bottlenecks, uh, maximize efficiencies. He could figure out, you know, how much time each step of the process would need and how much labor each step would require. And so that way he was able to divide up his machines and his employees for, you know, optimal productivity. Um, but you're right. The workers were kept out of this process. They, they were intentionally not taught each step of the process and and that that stemmed from you know his concern about intellectual property. This was a time in which patent law was just not enforced. <laughs> so he was afraid that if my employee knows the trade secrets, he's going to sell them off to a competitor. So he didn't teach them that. But the effect that this had was that it de-skilled the labor. This is a, a term um, historical economists or economic historians, whatever, uh, call it the de-skilling of labor. They didn't need to be trained to be proficient potters like the guild members of the past. They just needed to learn you know, to do one repetitive task over and over for hours and days and years on end. And he even laid out his factory. Uh, it was called Etruria. He, he laid it out so that each room had a unique purpose. And there was no reason for an employee to be in a room that he wasn't assigned to. Uh, so this reinforced the de-skilling of his own workforce. And, and now that his workers are unskilled, uh, they can't own the machines, right? Because they're connected to giant steam engines. They can't take them home with them. Um, so he starts doing something else that's really new and innovative. Um, he starts requiring employees to clock in and uh, he pays them an hourly wage then. Uh, this is something that just wasn't really done before. 
so these are some uh, examples of, uh, uh, of things he did that were later adopted by other entrepreneurs in the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, I love the example, and I and I wasn't familiar um, with the story, and so I yeah, that was that was really fun to hear you you talk about that, and I appreciate it. Um, let's in in the time we have remaining, let's start to look forward now. So we have mm -hmm. all this track record of these shifts over the last uh, several hundred years, the Industrial Revolution. You you mentioned Industry 4.0, and we're, we continue to have disruptive technologies, and so. We're not done. Um, mm -hmm. These shifts are continuing to happen. Um, as you look into the future, what are some of the biggest changes you foresee? Not necessarily predict. We don't have a crystal ball, mm -hmm. but you know, what are the some of the types of things that you uh, suspect we'll see, say, in the next decade? Well, there's always um, the concerns people have about AI, right? Um, I think that's a good example. Um, one thing, looking at at, at history uh, to get to give a, a sort of comparison um, in the process of of mechanizing and industrializing the uh, uh, textile industry in Britain in the first industrial revolution um, you had this issue where you know you used to have these guild members who spun wool uh, that, that was actually like one of the first guilds in Britain was the wool spinners and um, and uh, this way, it, 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 uh, the government was able to say, okay, well, you can't spin this wool in the city unless, you know, you're a guild member, okay? So what a lot of merchants started doing was they hired independent contractors out in the country. And these were uh, the examples of cottage industry where they'd send them a bunch of wool, they'd let them rent a, a wheel, and they would spin the wool into yarn. And then somebody else would take another machine in the cottage and they would maybe weave it into a piece of cloth. Um, and the thing is that this is a very simple task to do. So a lot of people tried doing it, right? And then um, what happened next is it got mechanized. And so all of a sudden you've got all these people in the labor market doing this who are just, you know, getting crushed in terms of, of opportunities. And I see the same thing happening um, right now with uh, what, what used to be called taxi drivers, right? If you were a taxi driver, you would buy a medallion. And it was very similar to, to buying an apprenticeship, right? You had to pay for your apprenticeship to, to become a guild member. Um, and and they buy this medallion so that they could legally drive a taxi cab because it was a, a very regulated market, just like the guilds were very regulated. And uh, uh, it gave them some good economic security. Well, then Lyft and Uber come along and they say, we're going to instead build this network of independent contractors who do this without that uh, medallion system. And over the course of five years or so, we saw people just flood into this um, opportunity where at first, you know, they were doing so well for themselves that they could buy like a new car to drive people around in. And, and, you know, by 2019, that wasn't the case anymore. The, the, the take home income from doing that was so low. It was basically, you were just basically making ends meet. Um, and then now we see what on the horizon, the driverless car, they're, they're taking the need for labor out of the equation, at least in that sense. So as you saw people, you know, 
build these giant spinning mules, they call them in the, in the factories to spin cotton, you know, they, they were able to have one person do the job that used to require thousands of people working at the same time. So yeah, that's, this is a, another thing we see in terms of, I, I think certainly the, the driverless car, but all sorts of technologies still have the potential to replace people. Um, there's a, uh, a few computer programs in California, one's at Stanford, one's at um, UC Santa Cruz. <laughs> the one at, I think it's the one at Stanford, uh, can compose like five symphonies a day Whereas like a composer would take months to do that, <laughs> you know, and, and they're just as good as what a composer could have put together. It's just as good as what, you know, Bach or Beethoven could have put together. Um, the other one can write haikus, which are very easy to write. And, and, and people reading these haikus can't tell the difference between a human haiku and a computer haiku. So even the arts are uh, <laughs> up for grabs by, by uh, mechanization which is both scary and um, kind of humorous, I think. But uh, so the, I mean, just unlimited examples. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for those insights. And yeah, when we talk about the future of work, machine learning AI gets a lot of attention. Driverless cars gets a lot of attention. Um, talking about mechanization and uh, any, any kind of root nice tasks, uh, it, you know, it's predicted that, basically almost all of those are going to be replaced um, in the near future by technology uh, in, mm -hmm. in one form or another. Um, and so it's, it's super interesting to consider those implications for, for shifting entire industries, um, disrupting jobs, displacing workers, but also creating new jobs, creating new types of, of work. And we, we are more and more into a knowledge worker uh, environment and economy mm -hmm. where you know if, if 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 people want to be marketable they can't be doing routinized tasks they have to be creative thinkers they have to you know be able to um, communicate effectively they need all the soft skills they need to be able to um, demonstrate their creativity and and innovate um, those are the types of things that at least for now are harder you know to imitate uh, by machines um, you mentioned exactly you, and you mentioned um, like Uber and Lyft uh, and, and some of these other types of, you know, other companies that have taken similar types of models in different areas. Um, we've seen a huge shift over, over the last decade, really even over the last two decades, towards more and more gig work, more contingent workforce, um, a move away from the more traditional kind of eight to five um, full-time employee type arrangement. Uh, within organizations and so it'll be super interesting to see if if we continue to see that shift as well um, towards more project-based work as opposed to having you know people who um, are employees uh, but but we see even with like uber the big pushback to for mm -hmm. for uber drivers to be considered employees rather than independent contractors so right. i mean a lot of this is going to end up playing out in through you know shifts in legislation and in the courts as well in terms of what what it looks like to to do this type of work and does that mean we're formally associated with the organization as an employee or or whatever well and i think um with covid19 a lot of bosses are inevitably going to look at this and say okay our red brick factory 
just doesn't doesn't make sense in the 21st century. You know, you don't need employees who are coming in to work on a computer to do that in the office. It's not necessarily a bad idea all the time, you know, especially if you're going to have meetings and so forth, but it's not necessary on a day-to-day basis. Um, you can get away from what Josiah Wedgwood had put together. You can get away from, um, you know, the, the nine to five routine, the clocking in. You can have a, a reskilling of labor, as I would call it. And, um, but ultimately, it's not going to be the skills that, you know, the people had in the Middle Ages, you know, making shoes and stuff. It's going to be, uh, like you said, soft skills. It's going to be critical thinking skills um, and so forth. Excellent. Well, this has been a really fascinating discussion. We're about out of time, um, uh, though I'm sure we could go on and on and on. Uh, but hopefully this has given listeners a chance to just consider a little bit of the history and how that's influencing our present day and, and, and trajectories that might lead into the future for how we could see um, shifts uh, come in the decades to come. Um, before we part, though, I want to give you a minute, Dave, to to share with listeners how can they get connected with your podcast and any of the other work that you're doing. Sure. So whatever um, podcast service you use, you can um, search for the Industrial Revolutions, plural, and uh, you'll be able to find it. Uh, it's also uh, the Industrial. Uh, sorry, it's. Um, at IndrevPod for all the social media platforms and uh, industrialrevolutionspod.com for the website. And uh, you can check that out. Um, hit subscribe so you always get new episodes, just like uh, with uh, HCI. Um, yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It's been a fun discussion. I hope that the listeners will um, reach out to Dave, uh, get connected with his podcast, lots of more interesting insights um, in, in historical context and understanding to be had there for sure. Um, I hope everyone has a wonderful day and the rest of their week. Stay healthy and safe. And I hope you uh, are happy and have a meaningful experience at work. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.